Before we get started, I want to flag a quick correction. Yesterday, we called the UK Chancellor's annual speech the Madison speech, when it's actually the Mansion House speech. Sorry for the slip up there. Now, on to today's show. Good morning from the Financial Times. Today is Tuesday, July 11th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Hedge funds are ditching their bets on U.S. stocks, and American banks might have to adapt to tougher capital rules. Plus, NATO's annual summit kicks off today. We'll take a look at why it's so difficult for Ukraine to get a seat at the table. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. The U.S. stock market has been going strong this year thanks to big tech companies. But that hasn't stopped hedge funds from slashing their bets on a rising U.S. stock market. Wall Street's exposure hit its lowest level to U.S. equities since 2013. Some managers are worried that the Federal Reserve will continue raising interest rates, which could cause an economic downturn. Instead, the funds are paying record-setting attention to European stocks. Big U.S. banks may have to start keeping a bigger rainy day fund. The Federal Reserve's vice chair for supervision, Michael Barr, laid out possible capital changes yesterday. The big one is for lenders with $100 billion or more in assets to store additional capital in order to handle an emergency. The capital rules are being floated after Silicon Valley Bank and several other mid-sized regional lenders collapsed earlier this year. I'm joined now by the FT's U.S. economics editor, Colby Smith, to explain more. Hi, Colby. Hi, Mark. So what are in the guts of these proposals? So at the end of the day, uh, the the overall premise here is that uh, these bigger banks need to be um, stashing away uh, more capital that then could be used uh, to absorb any losses that could come from, let's say, an adverse um, market event, any kind of unpredictable loss uh, that, that could have to be booked at a later date. These proposals basically suggest that banks are going to have to think um, a little bit more uh, aggressively about how much money that they're, they're putting aside for for this. So one of the proposals in particular would require banks to basically include paper losses on their investment portfolios when calculating how much capital to put aside. So uh, the point here is to kind of beef up the financial system. It just seems like the the kind of right time to do that from the Fed's point of view. If banks are required to keep more capital on hand in the case of an emergency, um, does that mean that potentially that that's less going toward investors in the form of dividends? So that's one of the consequences that that if you hear from bank lobbyists, they they talk about. Some say that this is going to uh, crimp lending um, to small businesses and other institutions that need it because banks are going to be forced to um, meet these higher capital requirements. Others say that, you know, this could have um, then an impact on economic growth. But I mean, at the end of the day, Barr and the Fed, they, they really do try to kind of push back on those kind of initial criticisms. They say that, you know, a well-fortified banking system, which means um, a well-capitalized one, is actually one um, that, that is healthier and, and means more lending is extended. It means that, you know, the economy is functioning on a more efficient level. Colby, are these proposals, will they be confirmed anytime soon? 
So it's really going to be a long, drawn-out process. I mean, these are proposals first and foremost. So um, there's going to be an extensive kind of comment period that the Fed holds. Then they have to be voted on by the Board of Governors at the Fed. And then in order to ensure that, you know, these rules don't have some severe market impact, the Fed usually phases in rule changes like this um, over, you know, an extended period. So we could be looking, we're we're probably looking at a multi-year process at this point. Colby Smith is the FT's U.S. economics editor. Thanks, Colby. Thank you. NATO's annual summit starts in Lithuania today with some big news. Turkey has agreed to support Sweden's bid to join the military alliance. Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan decided to lift his veto after hours of negotiations last night. Erdogan has been blocking Sweden's path to NATO for more than a year. Now, all eyes are on Ukraine. Most NATO member countries want Kyiv to join, but there are two pretty big holdouts, the U.S. and Germany. Here to talk more about this is the FT's European diplomatic correspondent, Henry Foy. Hi, Henry. Hey, Mark. So, Henry, like I said, pretty much the majority of NATO wants Ukraine to join. France, the U.K., Eastern European countries, they all want them in. The U.S. and Germany are more hesitant. How come? Nobody wants Ukraine to join the alliance today because to bring Ukraine into NATO right now would mean NATO has to go to war with Russia. The key priority right now is to make sure Ukraine wins this war. So anything else distracts from that. The second issue is about escalation. It's if we say that one day this country will definitely become a member of NATO. And not only that, but we have a plan for it and we're going to start that plan today here in Lithuania, that is a red flag to Russia. And that's only going to escalate the war. It's only going to drag it out longer. And it's only going to give Russia a reason to want to, at some point, hit back at other NATO states. Are there compromises on the table for the two sides? The compromise we may see after the leaders sit down and haggle personally over the table is likely to be something that acknowledges Ukraine's progress towards membership, that takes into account the war, but also reminds Ukraine that there are lots of obstacles, lots of hurdles, lots of rules and processes. And so it's not going to be something snappy. It's not going to be something easily Instagrammable that President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine can sell to his people. It's what diplomats involved in these talks are telling me is being hashed out at the moment. One of the things that I think is interesting is that this war kind of began, Russia had used the excuse that they were worried about Ukraine membership to NATO And they use that as an excuse for invading Ukraine. How does that kind of play into all this? Does it play into all this? That's a great question. I mean, that is what a lot of the Eastern countries, the Brits and the French, are saying to the Americans and the Germans right now while these negotiations are going on. They're saying, look, if we don't send a really strong signal, not just to Ukraine, but to Russia and the rest of the world, that this country is going to become a member of our alliance. And not only that, but we have a plan, we have a pathway, we have a structure for them to join. We are effectively allowing Putin to win on that count. We are allowing him to achieve one of his strategic aims from this invasion, which was to delay, block, or make impossible uh, Ukraine's entry into this alliance. And so simply, if only for the reason that we need to do it because Putin has tried to stop it, we need to show Ukraine that we're serious about this and that we have a plan. Henry Foy is the FT's European diplomatic correspondent. Thanks, Henry. Thanks a lot, Mark.
The Prime Minister of the Netherlands is quitting politics. Mark Rutte made the announcement yesterday. His coalition government collapsed last week after he tried to introduce a tougher immigration policy. With 13 years of service under his belt, Rutte is the EU's second longest serving leader after Hungary's Viktor Orban. I mean, he's the real survivor of Dutch politics. That's our EU correspondent, Andy Bounds. There's 20 different parties in the lower house of parliament. So he's the one guy who's been able to sort of hold them together and and find ways of building coalitions with enough seats to actually govern the country. Ruta will stay on as caretaker prime minister until the next election, which will probably take place in November. And he says Ruta's legacy, well, it's a bit of a mixed bag. He's a consensus builder. He sort of hovers slightly above the fray to some extent. I mean, his last government actually collapsed over a child uh, benefit scandal. And then he came back as prime minister after the elections with the same parties in power. So he's sort of become the default uh, go-to politician. But populist parties are on the rise. There's been quite, you know, fraught, fractured debates in society in the Netherlands about they're trying to reduce the amount of nitrogen, they emit nitrates. The immigration issue has sort of festered and and is now one of the biggest, you know, issues. The housing crisis, there's not enough affordable housing. So there's a number of issues. The Netherlands is a very well-off country, but it feels a little bit uneasy with itself at the moment, I think. Andy Bounds is an EU correspondent for the FT. You can read more on all of these stories at ft.com for free when you click the links in our show notes. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.